Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. Today, we have an important and very timely presentation. James Gosler is one of the United States' foremost experts on cybersecurity and information operations. He is a former senior scientist from Sandia National Labs. He spent some time at CIA. He served on the Defense Science Board, and currently he is a senior fellow with Johns Hopkins Applied Science Lab. But most important, Jim and I spent some time together back in the mid-1990s at CIA, where we created an organization called CETO, Clandestine Information Technology Office. This later became the Information Operations Center, IOC, and today it is the fifth and newest directorate at uh, CIA, the Directorate of Digital Innovation. Jim, welcome to AFIO Now. So, uh, uh, Jim, we had talked before in terms of kind of the approach that uh, we would take uh, for this. I have a very good uh, friend, uh, a retired NSA senior, who had asked me uh, you know, about a half a dozen months ago uh, to give a talk to his uh, graduate uh, seminar class at the University of Maryland. And uh, what I think this will provide is a useful framework in terms of the, the cyber issues, how to think about it, how to organize the thoughts that a lot of your members already have uh, on this topic. Uh, as I go through this, and you know, my, my, my uh, main day job as a senior fellow at uh, Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, as you indicated, but any comments I make today through, this, through our uh, discussion are, are mine alone and, and don't necessarily reflect those of uh, APL. Um, so, you know, uh, what it, normally I do is I start with the kind of the bottom line up front relative, what are the big ideas I want to end up sharing. Uh, but for this audience, I thought what I would do is do that second and, and start with kind of uh, my view of how I characterize from a taxonomy perspective the threat. And this this taxonomy came out of a 2013 Defense Science Board study on uh, resilient military systems and the advanced cyber threat. And we basically, as a, as a study, broke the threat up into six tiers, but really kind of three buckets, you know, tier one and two, three and four and five and six. And there's nuances between those, but you know, it, it's for this, it's good enough just to have three buckets. You know, the, the, the lower tier threat are, are basically uh, criminal kinds of people who are very effective at uh, using known vulnerabilities and somebody else has built uh, the exploit and they borrowed it, they've stolen it, they paid for it, uh, and then operationalize, you know, the exploit with vulnerabilities to cause problems, mostly to make money. Uh, but they typically don't have the technical expertise to discover the vulnerabilities at a target themselves, much less build and exploit uh, to uh, secretly take advantage of the vulnerability. The next tier up uh, uh, is you know, large criminal organizations uh, or some uh, nation states where they have the ability to discover the vulnerabilities. So you know, that's a technical uh, uh, endeavor and also build their own exploits and operationalize that with their own tradecraft, as you, know, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about various forms of tradecraft over the decades we've known each other. Uh, the top tier, uh, tier five and six, uh, are the kind of the big dogs in the game. 
And so not only can they do the things that we've just talked about, and if the lower tier capabilities are sufficient to achieve their operational objectives, that's what they end up doing. But in addition to all that, they have the ability to operationally introduce vulnerabilities in a target. Uh, and you kind of saw that in the uh, uh, SolarWinds example, uh, where the uh, bad guy, whoever that was, was able to actually get into the system and talk about how they got into it. I don't really have the details. But what they ended up doing was actually modifying uh, an Orion update that would, you know, basically all the uh, SolarWinds customers would download or download that update into their system. Uh, that, that's a pretty sophisticated supply chain uh, operation. So that takes a pretty sophisticated uh, adversary to be able to pull that off and gain that level of scale. And the, you know, kind of the nuanced difference between a tier five and tier six adversary is the six level six adversary can do these these things uh, at global scale. Uh, so the impact, as we've seen, kind of little hints of, uh, can be fairly uh, dramatic. So when I'm talking about threat, uh, that's kind of the taxonomy I'll have I'll have in mind. Uh, Defending against this uh, top full-spectrum adversary, we'll talk a little bit as I go through here what full-spectrum means, uh, is significantly more difficult than even cybersecurity professionals realize. Um, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of the intuition, I think, is in that middle uh, tier, uh, the three and the four tier. The level of effort uh, the top tier guys can go to in terms of lying, cheating, stealing, corrupting the supply chain uh, makes it very, very difficult uh, to defend against. And it's not just about protecting secrets that a lot of people end up uh, uh, go to very quickly. And there's been some notable examples in recent recent time in terms of uh, where the objective was not stealing secrets. The objective was to cause a disruption in the system. You can think uh, as a grand recent example, the Colonial Pipeline. You, know, you might have needed to steal secrets up front in order to pull off the denial of service against that pipeline, but the denial of service was what they wanted ransom uh, and certainly got uh, the company's attention and it got the nation's attention. Based upon you know, how, how ugly this game can get, uh, a lot of seniors, both within corporations and within the government, would like this kind of to go away. And as you remember in our days together, uh, there was a huge desire, although delusional, uh, in terms of just finding a technical solution that solves this problem so that I don't have to deal with it anymore as a senior. Well, we can see, you know, you know, we've crossed paths, what, um, over 25 years ago, Jim, and we're not a lot better off in defending against this stuff. In fact, one could argue we're worse off uh, because our dependency has grown. So you're not likely to see today or in the, in the near or even distant future, closed form technical solutions that make this problem go away. It's not just about protecting the enterprise systems. Again, that's a thought that a lot of people end up um, uh, going to. You know, the uh, the enterprise systems of a company that basically you know handles the emails and the web services, uh, payroll, HR, all those kinds of things is where the guy will get into. And again, Colonial Pipeline is a great example in that the bad guy actually got into the operational uh, aspects of the business so they could shut the pipeline down. So in DOD speak, you know, which a lot of my comments are going to be, you know, uh, biased with, you know, the, the mission systems, the ships, the ships, the airplanes, the submarines, the weapon systems, those mission systems are as susceptible 
uh, to uh, the cyber threat as the enterprise system. So it's not just an enterprise system problem. Uh, the defensive, so, so the defensive strategy, at least in particular at the nation state level, has to be a combination of increasing the resiliency of these enterprise systems and these mission systems, along with imposing costs to the bad guy for bad behavior. Um, and we're not really very good, at, in my view, and certainly not good enough at either one of those today. Uh, kind of an ugly, inconvenient truth associated with that is the cost imposition systems that we have to punish bad behavior, coincidentally, are also vulnerable to the same full-spectrum cyber uh, uh, tools and techniques. So it would be very uh, inconvenient uh, should the bad guy find ways to get into those cost imposition systems and neutralize them. So now, you know, deterrence is at risk if they know they can do that and and we don't. So we so basically we need to have sufficient confidence in our cost imposition systems working in the face of these tier five and six threats. And we need to have a strategy whereby the opponent has sufficient doubt in the effectiveness of the operations they're conducting against these cost imposition systems. So if we do that well, there's enough pause. Uh, in that system so that you have enough stability and uh, really ugly things don't happen between tier five and six uh, opponents. It's also important to remember all these mission systems uh, uh, includes all the supporting elements, both within the military and the commercial sector. And in fact, there's an entanglement between the military and and commercial sector. And there's ongoing studies that look at those dependencies to make sure that if uh, we uh, end up uh, in a position where we have to mobilize those dependencies that we have on the commercial and critical infrastructure uh, will work well enough so that we can effectively uh, mobilize. Uh, as you as you well know, Jim, and most all, if not all of the members of AFIO will know that a good offensive team will do a lot of upfront work in terms of targeting and analysis. And they don't intend to apply their tools and techniques against the strength of the adversary. They're using their targeting and analysis to find a weak point. And they use sufficient strength against that weak point to achieve their objective, be it stealing secrets or causing things not to work so well, or causing the owner of that system to lose confidence uh, in the system. Mission owners, in my experience, uh, the people who are kind of somewhat distant from the cyber game itself, act only when when they are convinced that their mission assurance, whatever that may be, uh, is at risk uh, due to these threats. So if the people within the cyber business are not effective enough at convincing uh, the mission owners that uh, their mission assurance is at risk, you're not going to get much more than lip service out of them unless you know uh, they're forced uh, to act. Basically, dealing uh, with these mission, mission owners, once you have built the bridge and crossed it and they believe their mission assurance is at risk. Uh, what they're going to be faced with is some very uncomfortable decisions in terms of where and how they apply uh, the resources they have. So, so that basically kind of the you know, the bottom line up front is all the major points I want to make, and then kind of the talk uh, I go through kind of tries to expand on this, and, and because right now they're all assertions, and I try to put a, a little bit meat on the bones, as, as you can imagine, and you know well. Uh, a little difficult to do that in an unclassified setting. So when you when you back away today, and, and it's a lot better today in terms of awareness than it was when we were in the business. 
you know, the cyber challenge is basically everything is dependent upon this underlying technology of microprocessors, microcontrollers, software, firmware, uh, connectivity, uh, et cetera. And so <clears throat> that underlying fabric is, ends up being the target that the bad guys go to get objectives at the higher level, kind of the application level, whatever that may be. Uh, these critical systems are all vulnerable to that tier five and six adversary that we talked about. And an unfortunate truth is that most of these things are vulnerable to uh, much lower level capabilities than the, what the tier five and six uniquely possess. Uh, because there's not going to be any closed form technical solution that we, we talked about up front, what's required to manage this threat and these risks is what I'll call a system solution uh, to this. And you know, we'll talk more about that uh, as we unfold the framework. Somewhat controversial, but my sense is less so today than it was 20 25 years ago, uh, for key systems, this could end up being catastrophic to ex existential from a, from a consequence perspective. And so uh, you, know, you can think in terms of if you were in the precipice of war uh, and the bad guy had access to, to much of our critical infrastructure uh, and there's not a lot for them to lose to kind of pull the trigger based upon those accesses, the impact on society and the impact on our military would be uh, over perhaps overwhelming. So kind of two perspectives, and this is with kind of probably a huge bias that I have based upon where you and I have come from, but I kind of have a, a view of talking points relative to how I view the mission owner's perspective, you know, perhaps a defensive perspective, and kind of with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, uh, kind of how I view how the offensive people uh, see the world. So the, the, the mission owners, it's basically an acquisition operational uh, culture, things are cost, schedule, function, performance. Mission is mission assurance in, in the face of their traditional threats. And the threat that we're talking about here, in most cases, is not traditional to them. It's kind of a little bit countercultural. And what a lot of effort is being done today is actually move it from the fringe and make it traditional, a traditional threat perspective that the uh, mission owners in particular, critical infrastructure owners have. There tends to be an abundant focus on confidentiality, that's protecting secrets, versus availability and integrity of what you own and their target. Uh, because the focus is on confidentiality, is that you know there's a there's a mindset that if I have effective implementation of advanced crypto in my in my system design, that kind of solves the problem because it's just a confidentiality issue. In fact, if you're worried about availability, uh, uh, world-class crypto could actually be a detriment, you know, not a not a solution. Uh, so, they're, they're, you know, the confidentiality requirement and the availability requirement, what I call somewhat intention. So, if you do a lot to solve one problem, you actually may make the other problem worse. There's a perspective that if I air gap my system, uh, their target uh, have solved my problem. Well, we, we have lots of examples where that's not quite so. Uh, again, the primary focus is on enterprise networks, not these mission systems that we talked about. And thus, if it's all enterprise, it's it's kind of the CIO problem and nobody else's problem. So I can I can I, I, there's no need for me, the mission owner, to worry about it. There's also a perspective, but much less so today, that the supply chain su supply chain is trusted. You know, who, no one would do that or could do that. And we uh, we have more and more examples of, again, Colonial's pipeline, uh, perhaps as an example, but certainly the solar winds 
uh, is an example of that. So the bottom line is my view of their view of the threat is it's technically and operationally unremarkable. Uh, they, the bad guy mirror our policy and political constraints, which couldn't be further from the truth. The insider and the supply chain problem is so hard, let's pretend it away. Uh, the threat couldn't or wouldn't uh, conduct such an operation. You know, you, you, uh, Gosler, you've watched too many movies. Uh, and I've certainly had more than my fair share of people tell me that. Uh, and because of all that, you know, in the face of, of, of that and with, the, with those erroneous perceptions, you know, why would they make the difficult trades between function, performance, and security? So, so it's incumbent upon people, Jim, within, within our community to build a credible story that's not seen as hype and over the top to build that bridge to these mission and system owners such that they understand their mission insurance really is at risk. And these things uh, that, that I just got through talking about are somewhat myths, uh, and they really need to, to take those into account. So kind of the other side of that coin would be so uh, to the joy of the offensive player, you know, they see the target as naive, arrogant, unbalanced, and fragmented. You know, they're, you know, they're fighting each other. It's common for the offensive player to attempt to operate outside the expectations of their target. So even if they're security aware, you know, I can play a more sophisticated game and do it in such a way that, you know, even that defensive security team would not think that would be within the bounds and that they're not. If it's not within the bounds, they don't look for it. They don't protect against it. And there's a, you know, between a, a level three and four adversary and a level five and six adversary, there's a lot of maneuver room between those levels. So there's, you know, lots of play in there where they can use more sophisticated techniques and tools uh, to operate outside the expectations of their target. Again, they discover soft spots and apply strength to weakness. And soft spots is not just the technology, which a lot of people will think. But soft spots are people and processes. And that's what made, in my view, Jim, you and I such a good team. You know, I was kind of the somewhat the conehead. Uh, I don't think you ever quite called me a conehead, but at least in my face. Um, and you were, you know, a guy who understood the, the, the world and how people interacted in it. And bringing those two worlds together, I think, was a was a uniqueness of the organization we helped get going and very important. So the bad guy, uh, you know, if, if the soft spot is a, is a microprocessor or a, uh, a driver uh, for an application, I'll go after that. If the soft spot is the system administrator, I'll go after him or her. You know, whatever it takes to win, that's the full spectrum adversary I'm kind of trying to tease out in this. You know, targets today are highly dependent upon commercial technology. And so a, a sophisticated bad guy will find ways to leverage that if they need to. That's a, somewhat harder. There's risk associated with it, but they have that within their tool bag. But they'll typically reserve these high-end capabilities for high-value targets that can have game-changing impact. So if if I can do use a low-level tool, uh, or technique to achieve my particular objective. That's what I'll use while I expose the high-end stuff. So that's kind of set up. That's what I want to kind of walk through real quick are three uh, Defense Science Board uh, studies. And again, speaking for myself and not uh, as a former member of the Defense Science Board, uh, to kind of, and, and I would highly recommend uh, your uh, members to uh, get a hold of these. Uh, for the most part, the uh, studies are unclassified, and you can download them from the Defense Science Board website. The first one 
that was entitled Resilient Military Systems and the Advanced Cyber Threat. Uh, Lou Von Thayer and I co-chaired that. Uh, we reported out in about 2013. It was pretty controversial in 2013. The opening sentence of the executive summary basically says this, and I'll just read it. The United States cannot be confident that our critical information technology systems will work under the attack from a sophisticated and well-resourced opponent utilizing cyber capabilities in combination with all their other military and intelligence capabilities, parentheses, a full-spectrum threat. And so what, what that basically said right up front within that report to the Secretary of Defense is that against this level of threat, he really can't have confidence that any of these systems will work. Um, and that doesn't say none of them will work. What it says, it's going to be difficult when the going gets tough to know which of these systems that he's dependent upon the bad guy has had their way with. Uh, it's difficult, unless you have penetrated the bad guy, to know through observation or evaluation. And so then there's a, you know, a, a very lengthy report that supports that assertion and provides suggestions in terms of what, what one needs to do. But kind of a bottom line to it is that Whatever our nation's strategy relative to dealing with this problem, deterrence has to be a big part of it because you can't solve this problem by just increasing resilience. Okay, so so that led to uh, another study that was entitled Cyber Deterrence. Um, in my view, at least, a better title for that uh, study would be Deterrence in the Cyber Era. And I co-chaired that with uh, Jim Miller who had been the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And again, kind of like me and you, you know, Jim had a, had a, another Jim, had a, had a much uh, different uh, view of the world than I did. And we were very, uh, in, at least in my view, maybe not Jim's, uh, very uh, complimentary. And kind of the, the big idea uh, for, this, for this report was uh, confirming the results of this resilience report that indeed uh, cyber deterrence Deterrence in the cyber era uh, had to be foundational to our national strategy in this. And we needed to make sure that the president had more than one um, cost imposition tool that was highly resilient in the face of these threats. You know, the one that people go to and think about frequently is, you know, the nuclear deterrent. Uh, but, you know, you don't want to have a one arrow quiver uh, when the going gets tough. So we had suggested a couple others, but one of which, importantly, was actually offensive cyber, which is very attractive uh, from lots of perspectives and that you can kind of tune it up and down in terms of making sure it's proportional, sending a, a message that we're unhappy with your behavior. Let's talk. You know, we need to de-escalate this crisis, not escalate it. And so one of the main outcomes of the cyber deterrence uh, study was, was yet another study, and it was entitled Cyber as a Strategic Capability. Now you can you can see the flow here. Uh, so that was in around 2017. Uh, uh, Chris Inglis and I uh, co-chaired that. Chris had been most recently the uh, uh, the deputy director at NSA and, and quite phenomenal. He's uh, on the path to be the new national cyber director. Uh, the nation couldn't find a, a better person in the entire country to take on that job, in my view, than Chris. So, so you know, most of that third study, cyber and strategic capability, we can't talk about uh, in this forum. Uh, but, you know, we talked about that, that first and foremost, you need to have a strategy uh, that's actionable. Uh, we uh, uh, in, in that from that perspective, I think we're much better off than 
we were back in 2017. In order to have an effective uh, deterrence, you can't live in a glass house. So you really need to improve the resilience of lots of these systems that we're seeing uh, being penetrated and uh, somewhat crumbling uh, today. So uh, you don't want to be throwing too many stones if uh, you live in a glass house. The third big area was the fact that uh, we needed really work on our cyber cadre. Uh, I was very pleased when I watched uh, uh, the confirmation hearings for both Chris Inglis and Jen Easterly uh, that the, the senators, in fact, very strongly bipartisan, uh, were uh, very concerned about the nation's cyber cadre and what, what we need to do, what they can do to help to increase the emphasis and excitement and in career prospects for people entering this field and staying in this field. Uh, so, you know, that's a high priority to them. And I was uh, uh, very delighted to see that. Another, you know, area is that uh, this is a team sport so that, you know, the government needs to work closely with our, not only our industry partners, uh, but also a lot of our foreign trusted partners. And sometimes, you know, even, even some partners that may not be so trusted working together for common cause to, uh, ensure that you know we can can work effectively together as a planet, uh, and uh, not go over the top in some of these areas that is quite possible. So you know I've used the word resilience quite a bit so far uh, in the talk. Uh, you know it's hard to pin down and define. Uh, we spent a lot of time in that first 2013 study trying to define it. In my view, we never did a very good job of it. But one thing that is is clear to me. You can't talk about the resilience of a particular system unless you talk about the resilience in the face of what? A U.S. aircraft carrier and its mission assurance is not at much risk against the Taliban. Uh, but the same may not be true against uh, uh, a tier five or six adversary that spent decades developing techniques to try to neutralize the effectiveness of, of a, a carrier battle group in their backyard. So there's lots of things you got to worry about there. And that's the top tier five, six game that, that uh, uh, we need to be playing. So because this is such a hard topic to talk about the details, and again, you know, I'm spending a lot of time with assertions here with you, and I know you and your members will be the choir uh, to, to a great degree. Uh, so finding an opportunity to kind of get into the details a little bit and kind of prove a little bit uh, that the assertion is not just smoke and mirrors, you know, you kind of, I tend to go back in history. The best example I have found uh, that I use to talk about what we have to worry about today is a is an example that uh, the Soviets ended up perpetrating against us in the um, 70s and 80s. Uh, and in my view, it was a brilliant operation. It was called the Gunman Operation, the Gunman Project, that you know well. I mean, it's clearly a very dated example. Almost all your members will know the story, so I'm not sharing it to enlighten them but, uh, on that because they already know it. Uh, but the purpose for bringing it up is it's a beautiful vehicle for basically building the story for, for them to share with people. They want to shape, shape their insight relative to the cyber topic. I mentioned to you before, uh, Eric Hazeltine had written a book uh, maybe a year or so ago. Eric had been the uh, head of research at NSA, and the title of the book is The Spy in the Moscow Station. Eric Hazeldean, again, is the author. I would recommend it uh, uh, to read and digest and perhaps use the stories in that to help your members want to shape their view on the cyber problem in terms of if this is how the game was played in 1975, 1985, 
how might that game be played today using the technology uh, of today as opposed to an IBM selected typewriter of the of the 70s and 80s. And, and in fact, you know, I happen to have have here uh, the um, bar that is aluminum bar that was uh, inside the IBM typewriter that basically the Soviets removed and replaced with an identical looking bar. And inside the uh, a cavity that they had machined out, they inserted, you know, discrete electronics that basically allowed them to capture every keystroke that was being typed. And typically these typewriters would find their ways to, you know, very senior administrative assistance of the senior diplomats uh, within, within an embassy, and in particular the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And then when the small buffer was full, it would find a, you know, a convenient path to exfiltrate that through an off RF signal to a nearby Soviet listening post. So they typically had the talking points or what was being typed on the typewriter before the ambassador did. Um, pretty, pretty uh, clever. And so, uh, again, um, old technology, and, but the way the game is played, if you, if you dissect that old story, and Eric does a very good job of doing it, you get a pretty good sense at an unclassified level of what you might need to worry about today with today's technology, thus for bringing it up. So, you know, these guys, in my view, every aspect of the game from the supply chain, the, the human aspect to it, the technical aspect to it, the, the RF aspect to it, the secrecy and counterintelligence associated with it, all coming together uh, was, uh, you know, in just in my view, exceptionally well done. So that kind of brings me in terms of, you know, so at the unclassified assertion level of this topic, how do I think about managing the risk associated with these tier five and six adversaries, or for that matter, the, the lower tier adversaries? I tend to think of it, you know, at a, at a very high level, and the risk is a function of three main uh, parameters, uh, the threat, the vulnerability, uh, and the consequence if you, the owner of a system, are compromised by one of these things. And so when you, when you think about it, if there's no threat, there's peace and love in the world, uh, then uh, I have no risk. Because even if I have vulnerability, you know, uh, we all love each other, so nobody would dare take advantage of a vulnerability. If I had no vulnerability, the world could be full of devils. Uh, and I have no problem because there's nothing for them to leverage. In the third category, if if the world is full of devils and, I'm, and I have abundant vulnerability, but it doesn't matter to me in any way if I get compromised, then I have no problem either. But as you and I well know, Jim, there's plenty of devils in the world. Uh, there uh, is abundant vulnerability in the systems because, you know, and, and, and for one reason is the complexity of these systems is beyond imagination. So there's lots of surface area. Uh, for finding vulnerabilities, uh, as we have seen with, you know, uh, the pipeline uh, issue, uh, there's a abundant consequence of these systems get compromised. And that's just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So so if you're going to manage your risk as a individual or as a nation, you need to think about, you know, what control do I have over the threat, the, my, my vulnerabilities and the consequence of being compromised. And you know, if you're an individual or a company, you don't really have a lot of control over the threat. You know, you depend upon your nation to cover your backside uh, relative to that parameter. But you do have control over your vulnerabilities and the consequence of being compromised. And, you know, in terms of continuity of operations for a company, 
you want to make sure that you have uh, a backup site uh, to continue uh, the operations of your company should the system go down to an earthquake, a flood, or a bad guy. Uh, so, you know, perhaps more attention needs to be uh, looked into relative to that because, you know, if if I have to worry about a hurricane or an earthquake, I might be able to leave my backup online. But if I have to worry about a cyber guy, leaving that backup online may not be such a good idea because if they penetrated the main system, they walk through that to my backup system and get that at the same time. So again, uh, threat, vulnerability, and consequence is a pretty good way of thinking about it. So, so what are some high-level things that uh, in addition to that taxonomy that I came up with in terms of risk that people could think about doing, in particular, major companies can think about doing and governments can think about doing. Well, you want to decrease the inherent vulnerabilities in hardware and software. So less complexity is a good idea. More complexity is a bad idea. You want to make it more difficult for an adversary to introduce a vulnerability through the life cycle. So this is all the supply chain kinds of stuff that we have talked about. That's a difficult thing for a company to do. It's a difficult thing for a country to do because we're so interdependent on the planet relative to consuming technology. And it's not just the end product you have to worry about. You have to worry about all the, all the elemental uh, components that go into the systems that we use and that we're very dependent upon. Again, uh, you, you want to, for things that really matter, you want to minimize the needed functionality in these systems. You want to do, reduce complexity of the critical components in these systems. You want to increase your ability to deeply evaluate uh, these systems. You actually like to design these systems so that they're inherently more evaluatable. Right? To kind of you know increase my ability with tools and techniques and smart people to evaluate. And I actually, by design, make it easier to evaluate. So you kind of meet in the middle and... Uh, you end up being much better off. You want to increase the coupling between offensive and defensive elements of the business. And you want to use a aggressive world-class red teaming and repeat, you know, cycle through this on a continue, continuing basis relative to those things that are very dependent. Uh, you want to increase the probability of detecting a component behaving badly. You want to increase the probability of attributing that bad behavior to a bad guy. And you want to squeeze them uh, when you got to squeeze them proportionally so that they get the message that uh, uh, trying to have their way with these kinds of systems is not going to go well for you. So we need to have a strategy that pulls all that together. So kind of the bottom line and, and kind of the, almost the last chart in this you know, you know, kind of seminar that I gave is there's no short term answer to this and tech, technology alone will never be sufficient to solve it. This has got to be managed across the full spectrum threat. It's not just a technology issue. System solutions are required. And again, you know, the partnership that you and I had was so important for that reason. Uh, strategies to deal with these long-term challenges has to be have to be sustainable across administrations. This can't be a partisan kind of deal. Uh, we're going to be fighting this kind of war for decades to come. You can't change the game plan. Every time you have seniors in government or administrations uh, cycle through, so that's in particular why, uh, relative to cyber cadre, I was so pleased to see such strong bipartisan agreement relative to working that aspect of the cyber problem. Uh, and clearly, there has been in, in, insufficient focus on that cyber cadre problem. In general, many mission owners lack sufficient insight into the strong connection between the mission assurance and the cyber assurance, and so. 
So we and, and the AFIO membership uh, need to beat the drum, uh, improve our ability to tell the story in a credible fashion that doesn't seem like a self-licking ice cream cone and it's not hype. It's a credible story. It's, it, at, and you have to do this at the unclassified level for, for many of the people we want to reach. So that's why the gunman story and stories like it are so useful. Uh, we need to change the emphasis between the uh, it's just an enterprise network problem from include the embedded system, the mission systems, because today the emphasis is out of balance. The probability of detecting uh, detection, the probability of attribution, the impact of a defensive failure and the consequence to, to, to an attacker are way out of balance. We need to bring them into much better balance. So by improving our defensive posture, and increasing our ability to impose cost and make it very clear to people behaving badly that we're willing to do that. Principal adversaries of the United States understand this as well as, as well as we do. And because of this new game, I believe that um, our technical superiority could end up well-being an Achilles heel as we move forward if we don't find more effective ways of addressing the things that we've talked about. So it's a serious problem. You certainly shouldn't underestimate the motivation, patience, and creativity of a bad guy. They apply strength to weakness. They have a surprising set of partners. They play by a different set of rules. They see offense as a system challenge, and they're going against a, a defense that's naive, arrogant, unbalanced, and fragmented. If we continue playing the game like we have been for decades from a defensive perspective, we're not going to make much difference in this, and the impact of losing that defensive game is increasingly becoming clear uh, and it's very consequential. So that's kind of the, the seminar, Jim. Uh, what I could do now is kind of how I summarize that for the class in terms of uh, what they might want to think about as they move forward uh, in their cyber careers or maybe a start a cyber career. Would that be helpful at this point? Or are we Yes? Okay. So this is basically kind of one, one chart. Uh, what I suggested to them is they need to develop a balanced understanding of the fund of, of, of the following ideas. They needed to increase the, their technical underpinnings uh, for this discipline so that uh, as they get deeper and broader within the technical underpinnings, they end up having a better understanding of what is possible and what is not possible, what is easy for the bad guy to do and what is challenging for the bad guy to do. You know, what you what you seek from a defensive perspective is finding a way to to spend a nickel uh, and, and by, by spending that nickel in just the right place, you have significantly increased the risk factor to the guy trying to mess with you. Right. You don't want it to do it the other way around. You don't want to spend a billion dollars defensively. And there, you know what you've done to the bad guy is is increased his work factor by five minutes and he spends the nickel. Right. So, so when you have a deep, deep understanding how this full spectrum game is played, both technically and again the human angle to this, uh, you're more apt to find a way for you to spend the nickel and for them to spend the billion bucks. Uh, so you want again how to have a deeper understanding how this full spectrum opponent plays the game. We just talked about that. Uh, you want to make the effective investments that we just talked about, uh, and you want to have a deeper understanding of why using offensive capabilities to support defensive objectives is absolutely critical to any national strategy. You want to understand the legal and policy constraints that we have imposed on ourselves today that we might want to examine if, if indeed they unnecessarily limit 
the effective options senior leadership within the country has. And, you know, we've been doing that. But, you know, uh, some of our principal opponents don't spend a lot of time thinking about their legal and policy constraints. They get basically uh, they can they can put them aside much more quickly than, than we do. So the next big idea I shared with the class was they need to build and evolve, evolve their story to convince seniors or people they want to influence uh, relative to the, to the nature of this game and the difficult trades that their bosses may end up having to make based upon how this, uh, building that story. And the last idea I left them with, that this is a team sport. So the federal government, the state and local government, industry, academia, trusted foreign partners uh, need to build and uh, nurture these relationships uh, and they need to encourage their team, wherever they are uh, within the uh, game, uh, to do the same. Uh, it's just too complicated to work this without integrating the various foxholes across the community. We need to bring them all to bear uh, together to the degree you can, because there are things that are difficult to share across foxholes, as you well know. Uh, but uh, the more we can share, the better as a team we are in dealing against these threats. So those kind of the takeaways for people, you know, who are already in the business and people who are getting into the business, the things that they want to look for and study and learn. Uh, and then as they start learning more of that, applying it within their daily lives uh, in the cyber game. So uh, that's kind of it. Jim, that was a fascinating and very timely presentation. You know, it brings back a lot of memories of the many conversations that you and I had together when we were uh, creating CETO uh, all those years ago with a group of very, very talented people, I thought I would share with our audience one thought model that you and I created back in the time. And that was that we had uh, a large group of people with very diverse skill sets. Um, and we occupied a lot of different rooms in a very large house. But as long as there was one common room that we could come into to share our information and ideas, then we go back to our separate spaces uh, to do our actual work. Well, in fact, Jim, when I when I remember those days, and uh, in particular that idea you just shared, I attribute that idea to you. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and you can you can actually see in the in the uh, comments that I made earlier in the talk, there's uh, there's certain doses of Jim Hughes sprinkled throughout that in terms of the influence you had over me in our in our time together at CETO. So I deeply appreciate that. Well, it was a great deal of fun. And I think we can all take some pride in what we accomplished uh, back then. Jim, I want to thank you for appearing on AFIO now. I know our AFIO members and the students who follow us will really enjoy this presentation. Thank you.